The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on where you are. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Um, we are going to step into an area that is becoming increasingly important for archaeology, uh, and especially archaeology in the private sector, which, as we have said in previous programs is becoming the dominant sector in archaeological practice, not only in North America, but largely in most parts of the world as well as heritage management and ecotourism take off. So um, we are going to place a, a, a new emphasis on one sector of the private uh, private sector, if you will, and that is the area of pipelines, oil and gas pipelines. It has been argued and it has been substantiated to a large degree that pipelines and the oil and gas industry are probably the most dominant impact player in private sector archaeology at the present. If we were to put all the information together, and it hasn't been done, it has been somewhat speculated upon, if we put that information together, we would find that the overwhelming component in, par, in private sector archaeology is the pipelines, which is effectively saying that they are a dominant force in archaeology generally. And this will be the first in a series of programs in which we are discussing pipeline archaeology from a variety of different perspectives. And I thought that the best introduction for that would be to bring in a, one of the leading experts on pipeline archaeology in the private sector. And that is my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Chris Bergman. Uh, Chris has a long history of working with pipeline companies in a consulting capacity. Um, he received his Ph.D. in prehistoric archaeology of the Old World, which is about 180 degrees removed, basically, from pipeline archaeology, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But Chris has worked extensively 
in the Middle East, Europe, and Japan, and of course, probably for the last uh, 15 or 20 years, Chris has been involved extensively in cultural resource management first, and secondly, he has found a niche for himself in, in the natural gas and oil industry, uh, having acted as consultant for a variety of ventures and corporations and companies for uh, the past 20 years. Uh, Dr. Bergman's research interests include lithic technology, experimental archaeology, and the material culture of people living in marginal resource settings. It's my pleasure to welcome you, Chris, to this program. Thanks for showing up. Thank you. Chris, let me start with sort of an off the uh, off the theme con uh, context, if you will. Uh, how did you uh, wend your way into pipeline archaeology, and how did a, a specialist in Middle Eastern studies uh, find his way into the private sector generally and into the pipeline uh, sector in particular? Well, that's a, a long story from a, a long-winded person, I guess. Uh, I uh, came back uh, to the United States after a uh, long period abroad uh, in the Middle East and in Europe uh, working in old world uh, settings because I was very interested in um, uh, North American archaeology and, and particularly uh, why at uh, the end of the glacial period um, the assemblages that I saw in, in the Near East and in Europe were so different than what people were reporting in uh, North America. So I was really anxious to get into a position uh, where, um, where I could, uh, you know, handle a lot of North American material uh, quickly, uh, you know, and actually be involved in the physical uh, investigation uh, of, uh, of archaeology, uh, prehistoric archaeology, as opposed to, you know, getting information from textbooks or, or secondhand sources. So that's kind of how I, I landed here. Um, how I got into working uh, in, in the, uh, with pipelines, and, and pipelines for me, of course, are oil and gas, but, but there are water lines and sewer lines and all sorts of different kinds of pipelines. Um, but uh, how I got into that really was uh, I uh, joined a company, and the first project I got sent on was a uh, was a pipeline project. So it was really uh, really kind of uh, by accident. And uh, that sort of evolved into a obviously a career for you to a large degree. Uh, and I think it was at that time. I mean, I believe this was in the mid '90s when pipelines were just running rampant, if you will. They were just being built in a variety of different locations in the United States. And you sort of uh, you, you, is it that that the companies that you worked with um, concentrated on pipelines, and then you sort of uh, took the initiative and moved in that sector, or how did that work for you? Well, uh, I think it was not so much that the companies that I worked for um, were, were exclusively involved in, in pipeline permitting work. Uh, you know, they did work for, for other sectors, you know, public and, and private as well. I think it, it, um, uh, it was a focus, and um, I, I guess, you know, having gotten involved in it, uh, I enjoyed working with people in the industry, in the pipeline industry, and I enjoyed the... Uh, the uh, pace and uh, challenges that uh, that one had when uh, doing permitting projects uh, for the industry, and it just uh, is something that uh, you know I kept doing. And you know, as we we do things, we get more experience. As we get more experience, we get better at doing them. 
And uh, I think that's really, really the, the simple answer. Uh, it was never a, it was never a, an idea that I would do uh, uh, pipeline uh, work exclusively, or you know that that was a goal. It was just something that was presented to me, and it was something that I enjoyed doing and uh, was able to learn a lot uh, about over the last twenty years. And so it's sort of kind of a feedback loop. You got into it, then you got experienced, and then you were kind of in demand. And, and I, I think I, I could safely say that you're one of the individuals that has sort of pioneered what we're doing in pipeline archaeology. And in that connection, I'd like to ask you about the regulatory process and what's involved, because I think a lot of people are listening to us, people who are not professional archaeologists, and they're probably just saying, what do pipelines have to do with archaeology? And if you could just step back a little bit and talk about the technical aspects of, of pipeline excavation, how that relates to archaeology, and what the regulatory process is all about, because I think that's one area that people are simply not familiar with. Well, I'd want to speak in a very general way, because as you know, Joe, um, uh, different kinds of pipelines, uh, natural gas, uh, oil, um, uh, or petroleum products, uh, uh, water lines are regulated in different ways by different agencies. And, and that's probably a, a much bigger discussion than we could uh, necessarily get into tonight to go into all the little nuances of how a different federal agency or a state agency might look at a, a, at a project. But um, uh, basically, you know, under the the provisions of the National Historic Preservation Act, uh, uh, lead federal agencies are required to consider the effects of an undertaking, and an undertaking, of course, is an action that may affect uh, historic resources, put simply. Uh, lead federal agencies need to uh, consider the effects uh, on historic resources of, of actions, proposed actions. And Basically, as, as you're aware, we go through a number of steps to identify, then evaluate, and assess effects of a given project uh, on historic resources. And uh, in, in, in a certain sense, it's, a, it, it's fairly simple. You know, uh, the, the regulations are complex, but the way we go about it is fairly simple. We, we go out and attempt to locate uh, archaeological uh, or above-ground resources. Once we locate them, we evaluate them against criteria uh, 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 for the National Register, listing for the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, we evaluate them and determine whether they are uh, eligible to the uh, National Register or not. And then if they do determine, uh, we do recommend or determine that they're eligible, uh, we develop treatment plans for dealing with any effects that may uh, may occur to those resources. So um, it's it's a, a three-step process uh, in the East. It's called Phase One, Two, and Three, or identification, evaluation, and mitigation. And uh, basically, uh, as part of the permitting process for for a pipeline, for example, depending on the regulatory setting, um, you know, one would follow through. Uh, these stages and attempt to understand what cultural resources, what archaeological and above-ground resources are in an area and what the effects of that project are uh, on them. 
Let's step back for a second as well. Now, I know surface survey in the east and the west, they're a little bit different. You do uh, what we call shovel testing in the east, and, and we do uh, uh, more open uh, surface surveys in the west. Um, and, and these survey strategies are obviously varied. My question to you, though, is what about digging uh, deeper into the substrate? I mean, what is the impact? What depth does the is is uh, do we have to examine? To what depth do we have to examine um, sites site um, areas of impact based on pipeline construction? Is there a fixed um, depth that you go to? I mean, and is there a fixed diameter of the pipeline and, and staging area that has to be examined? How does that work? Well, these these are all good questions, and as kind of varied, uh, uh, you know, as varied as the regulatory arena is, depending on, you know, who's, who's, uh, who's got the oversight, what the project is, so it is really with, with the pipeline project, you know, there are small diameter pipes, there are very large diameter pipes. Uh, there are, uh, as you've indicated, there's a need to not only assess things on a, on a horizontal plane, but a vertical plane as well. Um, you know, typically when pipelines are, are put in place, there is some grading of a, of a surface area, uh, and that's not very deep. It's just to create a level um, area to, I guess, more or less provide a, a platform for the, uh, you know, the vehicles and uh, men who are, are working on in placing the pipeline. And then, of course, looking at it vertically, uh, you have the trench itself. And, um, uh, you know, you are a, an authority on, on uh, landform, you know, geomorphological uh, processes. Um, you know, that's the arena that you deal with, uh, the, the vertical axis. I mean, we all do to a certain extent, but you in particular. And, uh, uh, you know, typically, you know, uh, you know, you could see a pipe in place at uh, seven or eight feet in some settings where you're crossing a river, it might be considerably deeper. And in some instances, it may involve uh, doing a horizontal directional drill that goes very, very deep. So um, the answer to that question is really uh, dictated by the nature of the project and, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, geography of the landscape it's crossing and uh, engineering needs uh, and needs related to environmental concerns that, that might dictate uh, just how much of a uh, an area is um, uh, subjected to uh, ground disturbance and then how deep. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we will continue our fascinating discussion with Dr. Chris Bergman on pipeline archaeology and its significance for the profession, and we're going after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back on a program in which we are discussing this first in a series of discussions that we're going to have on the significance and impact of uh, oil and gas pipelines in particular, but pipelines generally, uh, on the uh, archaeological profession. And my guest is uh, Dr. Chris Bergman, an esteemed colleague and one who has carved out a niche for himself in the pipeline industry in terms of uh, consulting for archaeological firms and obviously for the oil and gas industry. Chris, uh, you and I had talked previously about a number of things, and certainly in terms of the technical aspect of what one gets as an archaeologist when one does a pipeline, and that is specifically a, a linear transect across the landscape that allows us to look at the connections between uh, settlements, in, if you will, and, and the archaeology itself. I was wondering if you could expound a little bit on what an interesting that perspective that is, especially given that some of these pipelines run for tens to hundreds of miles and sometimes even thousands, uh, a thousand, or, which is, is what, probably the upper limit of that. What, what, what do you see as the advantages of this kind of exposure and this kind of sampling for archaeology in general and for the knowledge base? Well, I think it's, uh, Joe, as you, you indicated, I think the w- one thing that it really um, provides us is a window into landscapes and, of course, um, you know, particularly prehistoric landscapes, but also historic as well. I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of good information on uh, historic cultural landscapes where uh, people of different ethnicities organize themselves uh, uh, in different ways on a, on a given landscape. So... 
um, I, I think that's the you know the the real fundamental value. Uh, you know, I, I was just thinking as you were asking that question, you know, how one might explain that, and uh, you know, I, I can th- think of a project that, that we did in Pennsylvania uh, that was you know uh, a long linear corridor, and it was quite interesting for me to see as a lithic technologist um, how as this pipeline proceeded. Uh, really from, uh, you know, one uh, side of Pennsylvania to the other, from, from you know, from east to west, um, how uh, different raw materials were picked up and used by prehistoric peoples. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very good raw material in, in Pennsylvania for making stone tools, uh, jaspers and rhyolites and, and quartzites. And so it was uh, very interesting to see how raw material use changed. And it was very, very distinct. Uh, as we we crossed from from east to west, um, I, I think we also get a, a window into uh, different settlement patterns in in, in different uh, drainages, for example. So uh, I think that that's really a key value is that it, it gives a, 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 a bigger picture uh, in some ways than one would ordinarily get if you were just working in a restricted geography. Of course, I, I, I should speak about its limitation, uh, too, uh, which would be well-known, and, and I'm sure the audience could work out what it is, because it's um, you know, a very long, linear feature, a, a pipeline of any type, or even a road, for example. They, they could be considered in the same way. Um, the, 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 the downside to that is, of course, they tend to be very narrow, so we get this wonderfully long window that crosses uh, different geographic settings and, uh, you know, can inform us about how different areas may be used or different raw materials are, are used, traded, recycled, um, whatever. Uh, but by the same token, we're, we're getting a very uh, narrow window into, into these areas. Uh, typically, you know, a, a, a corridor might be, you know, 150 feet wide. Uh, so, so that's kind of uh, you have to work with with both those elements um, uh, when dealing with uh, with uh, pipelines and archaeology. I think, and you raise a great point, Chris. And I think this is something that I think the greater audience sort of should be aware of as as we do these types of shows and talk about the relationship just between cultural resource management and archaeology. And one of the, one of the issues that uh, that has emerged from all of this, especially for for those of us who are used to doing archaeology where we want to, is now we're doing archaeology where we have to. And one of the elements of that is your research area is sort of not defined by you, but in a sense, it, it, it's defined by the project and, and, and your capabilities of extracting information are constrained by the constraints of the project. On the other hand, that brings up your major skill set. How adapted are you to doing this thing? And I think both you and I grew up in a period where uh, we had research projects, we wanted to work on them in a particular area or in a particular domain or technique and we we could do that and and now all of a sudden uh money and science is sort of starting to dry up and the biggest opportunities i think are in doing this kind of work i'm interested in your perspective on that does it demand greater skill on the part 
of the researcher on the part of the professional to actually maximize the yield from a particular project which whose footprint really is imposed on you rather than you're making the decision on what you want to do and how has that affected your perspective on archaeology well um you know i i i I've, I've always believed cultural resource management isn't for everybody um uh, it, it, it's something that I think is very demanding. It, it requires uh, your attention all the time uh, to the problem, and, 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 and the problem is, is that you're working with a client, uh, helping them through a permitting process. At the same time, you're uh, attempting to address the uh, historic preservation laws, uh, and, and regulations, and you're also trying to address, you know, your your own um, science in a way, your own tie to science. And I think archaeologists, as people, tend to be very passionate about what they do. So um, I, I really feel that, that cultural resource management is 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 really demanding. It's not it's not something that's to be taken lightly and i think uh you know with uh, pipeline projects which um typically you know have um you know schedules uh, like any any um uh, you know development there are schedules that you need to uh, stay on and uh, you need to work uh, carefully and efficiently and and work through the process of of the permitting um, I, I think that that's really demanding, and I, I think it requires, you know, that one is really very good at doing one's science, that, 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 that the skill set that you bring uh, to cultural resource management uh, absolutely has to be uh, tip-top because um, you're, you're always having to uh, address uh, problems and issues and come up with solutions and uh, you know, in, in many ways, uh, balance um, uh, competing interests, uh, you know, uh, the interests of uh, many different people uh, that are stakeholders to a, to a project. So for me, it's always meant that um, you have to be uh, very mindful <laughs> when you do uh, cultural resource management and just looking at, at at a larger perspective, and again, I'm sure the audience is aware of this, um, you know, archaeology, by definition, for example, is um, you know is destruction. When we excavate a site, we um, you know we remove it. We're we're taking it away. And uh, you know, in cultural resource management, you need to make uh, good decisions. You need to try and make the best decisions you can make all the time because you are dealing with a uh, a non-renewable resource. And so. Uh, I would say my answer to you is is that really cultural resource management needs uh, uh, people who are uh, very capable, very uh, uh, adaptable, people who can think on their feet and, uh, you know, have a good sense of um, their science, of the regulatory arena they're operating in, but even more importantly, the, 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 the manner in which uh, their client's industry functions, you know, how they, how they do what they're doing when they develop something. And on that note, we're going to take another break, and we will be back with Dr. Chris Bergman after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSCU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. I'm back. Uh, this is Joe Schultenrein with uh, a very special uh, episode of our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's focus is on the unique world of pipeline archaeology, as uh, I've been discussing with uh, my special guest, Dr. Chris Bergman. Um, the pipelines are probably the biggest source of private funding for archaeology right now, certainly in North America. Chris, I was wondering if you could take us through a little chronology or a little history of pipeline involvement and the involvement of, of archaeologists with pipelines and pipelines sort of integrating with the archaeological profession. How did this happen uh, vis-a-vis the, uh, the regulatory environment, and what are some of the major developments that you can point to uh, as being significant in, in this uh, growing partnership? Well, I, I, I think that, uh, that obviously with, uh, you know, the um, uh, inaction of, uh, of uh, various regulations, uh, NEPA and the National Historic Preservation Act, and, and I would uh, uh, not uh, say that I'm, I'm an expert necessarily in them or in their chronology. I'm, I'm more a practitioner rather than a, a user, rather than one who's uh, overly knowledge about uh, knowledgeable about the um, the history of the process. I, I, I guess I could could best speak about um, you know my own involvement, uh, which you know goes back to uh, uh, the late uh, 1980s uh, when I first got involved. Um, you know, my experience was that um, uh, pipeline companies were were getting more and more. Situations where they had um, uh, 
projects that encountered uh, cultural resources and uh, the regulators were um, uh, uh, showing uh, uh, more and more interest in, um, you know, the process of identifying and uh, evaluating these resources. Um, I know that uh, both you and I were in a conference in, in Houston uh, in the, uh, must have been in the very early 1990s, where uh, a bunch of different uh, pipeline companies gathered to uh, talk about um, uh, uh, Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act and uh, how that uh, impacted uh, uh, pipelines and, uh, uh, you know, uh, cultural resources. There were a number of people from uh, various agencies invited uh, and, uh, and consultants, and it was a kind of brainstorming uh, about, you know, what, what are the implications of the laws and how they're regulated and, uh, so I think there was a lot of very proactive interest in, in trying to understand, you know, how the process worked and how uh, various uh, parties to the process of uh, doing permitting uh, uh, contributed to different aspects of, of information that could be used to uh, both further the process of, uh, you know, developing the pipeline industry, but at the same time uh, addressing historic preservation issues. And uh, I think uh, in those early days, um, you know, there were a lot of questions about, um, you know, why, why does one do this and how does one do it? I think as the years have gone by, uh, you know, pipeline companies uh, of all types, in, in my opinion, have uh, really developed a very good understanding of the process. And, uh, you know, have actually come to the forefront in many ways to, um, uh, you know, in, in, in dealing with Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act uh, issues on, on their projects. Um, I think there's a, a greater sophistication uh, than uh, we saw in the early 90s. Uh, there's a lot more... Um, uh, interest and development of uh, looking at very particular aspects of, of uh, the cultural landscape, uh, you know, not only just um, archaeological resources, but above-ground resources, um, uh, cultural landscapes, uh, traditional cultural properties uh, of uh, the First Peoples. Um, uh, I think we've all become more and more aware of, of how development, not just, you know, with pipelines, uh, in fact, uh, uh, impacts the, the cultural setting of, uh, of the United States. And uh, let's, what about the relationship between, say, the pipeline industry and the archaeologists? What kind of evolution do you see happening? I mean, it seems to me certainly that there's a higher comfort level and there's a, a, a greater understanding of what each party's task is here than there used to be. Because I think in the beginning, when you were talking about the late 80s, it was, you know, we were just sort of, if you will, feeling each other out and trying to figure out what was going where and how things were going to get done and how we were going to cooperate and, and how the regulators would actually step in. And I think that certainly over the course of the last 20 years, um, that has been smoothed out by and large. There are still, still some issues because this is uh, an industry, as you know better than anybody else, that's guided by time and deadlines 
more than anything else. And it puts a tremendous amount of, of pressure, I think, on us as well to, to get this stuff done, to get the jobs done uh, fast and yet to get them done right. And how, how do you see that dynamic playing out uh, in the past and where it's going in the future? Well, I, I, you know, we, we always have to remember that, that we're here to serve our, our clients, and, and our clients, if they happen to be in the pipeline industry, again, of any, any type of pipeline, you know, that our clients are, are interested in, in building their projects. So, you know, we always need to be mindful of that, that, that you know, as, as a consultant, we're really here to... Um, help and advise and support uh, our clients through a permitting process, you know, which is, you know, governed by laws and regulations and has oversight of, of, of a lead agency. I, I think uh, in, in the early days, um, and I, I'm not sure I did a really good job answering your last question, but, but I think in the early days, we were all trying to find out where we stood you know, in relation to various laws and regulations. In other words, how, you know, here, here, here are the laws, here are the regulations, you know, how do we implement these things? What, what is it that we need to do? Uh, uh, how do we get through a process? And, and I think there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of efforts uh, by, uh, you know, pipeline companies and consultants and, and agencies to try and, you know, understand where each party was coming from and how how they fit in the process. You know, what are the what are the expectations? Um, what are the things that that need to take place in order to get a pipeline certificated? For example, I I, I think a lot of the the early days to me would have been characterized by fact finding. You know, in other words, what what do we need to do here? How do we need to do this? I think now, you know, 2013, I think, uh, you know, we're talking about lots of people having been, you know, through the process for the last 20 years, and I think it's no longer a a kind of, um, you know, a mystery in terms of what needs to be done or or what the expectations of an agency may be or what, you know, what, what the National Historic Preservation Act requires. Uh, I think it's, it, you know, I think there's a lot of experience now in dealing with this, and I think it's it's more that, that the comfort level is that, you know, we've been through this process so many times that, that there's a, you know, there's an understanding of what the expected uh, protocols and procedures would be. Uh, I think so, and I, I would tend to agree. I think you and I are fortunate in the sense that we kind of grew up at a time when this, uh, this feeling out process, if you will, was sort of taking shape. So um, I, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, my feeling is that we're getting into a maturity phase where each of us knows, each party knows what the other has to do. The regulators also feel pretty comfortable with, with both parties. Chris, where are we going with this? Uh, where do you see the industry going? Is there going to be an expansion of, uh, of of pipeline networks, and how is that going to affect archaeology going forward? Well, um, I'm not, you know, obviously not a member of the industry per se. I work with it. Um, uh, I think everyone undoubtedly sees a, a lot of activity going on, uh, you know, all sorts of different companies and pipelines and 
different processes, and uh, so we're seeing a lot of it. You know, some areas are are are, are seeing more than others, uh, depending on the uh, the resources that are are being examined in those areas. Um, I my my personal expectation would be that that, that frankly, um, you know, because uh, the uh, the the industry and its regulators and its consultants have have all kind of matured together that that we can expect you know better and better um, uh, responses to whatever challenges may exist uh, in the future as a result of um, uh, perhaps uh, you know more and more exploration and development of, of different kinds of uh, uh, resources. So I, I think that, that really, uh, because there was that period of, of ramping up, if you want, where, you know, everyone got to understand, well, you know, how does, how does the National Historic Preservation Act work and how, do re- how are regulators going to interpret it and, and what do we need to do to get our, you know, our permits and our certificates um, I think because we've had that period and we've gotten through that, uh, some of the, the challenges that may uh, exist in the future uh, uh, are, are going to be dealt with, you know, in a, in, a, in a better and easier way, in my opinion, because there is all of that experience. Uh, you know, they, they often talk about gray hair. I think there's, <laughs> there's a fair amount of it about. There are lots of people who know how to do, uh, how to do uh, this kind of work and, uh, there are lots of people in the in the pipeline industry who have a excellent understanding of um, you know uh, uh, historic preservation issues. And uh, what what does it mean for archaeology? Where do you see the archaeology going in this? Because um, obviously we're exposing more and more sites. And I should point out, and, and we'll talk about this after we get back from break. I just want to sort of set the table here that uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the regulations. Um, there are always options if there is a significant archaeological site um, in the pathway, let us say, of a pipeline, then the pipeline can go either go around it or if it absolutely needs to go through it, then uh, what we call a mitigation measure has to take place. And we're going to talk to Chris about mitigation measures versus alternate routes after we get back uh, in, a few, in a few minutes. Thank you. We'll take a break right now. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, we're back. This is Joe Shilden Ryan together with my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Chris Bergman, and we are talking about aspects of uh, pipeline archaeology, specifically oil and gas pipelines, which tend to be, which are actually the most dominant component of the industry and probably the largest funder, I would say, of public sector, private sector archaeology in the country here. Uh, certainly, Chris, uh, we were talking a little bit about what actually gets done, the actual mechanics of, of, of the pipeline versus the archaeological site. And if you could give us at least a little bit of, of uh, insight on what happens when the pipeline route has actually a possibility of intersecting a major archaeological site. What's the process here and, 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 and how, do they, how, how do the planners deal with that? Well, I think that's a very good question, and I think that you know raises an, an, an interesting um, you know point of view, which you know has to do with historic preservation. Uh, basically, as you've as you've uh, indicated, uh, if one is going along and, and doing a survey that's aimed at uh, identifying sites, uh, you know, one uses shovel testing or you know pedestrian. Um, a reconnaissance of, let's say, a plowed and open agricultural field. Uh, one finds a site. Uh, you know, the next part of that process would be to evaluate its uh, eligibility for listing in the National Register. And if one were to determine that that one had encountered a site uh, that was eligible, then uh, really, uh, you know, a, a number of options exist, but there, there are two basic ones. Uh, one is to avoid the site. And the other is, is maybe to assess it further, uh, maybe even mitigate it or, or treat it through a formal archaeological investigation. Uh, avoidance is a, is a good option, and it's often used because it, it uh, limits the amount of uh, impact to uh, sensitive resources, sensitive archaeological sites or other cultural resources, and that can be done in a lot of different ways. You know, you can uh, laterally shift the uh, alignment of the pipeline, or you can, uh, in some cases, it's acceptable to uh, bore underneath it. Um, and, of course, that represents uh, historic preservation in its pure form because you're, you're, avoiding, you're avoiding impacts to that site. Uh, you know, and usually... Uh, the regulators, the, the lead federal agency or the, you know, state historic preservation offices will have guidance as to what represents a successful avoidance. Uh, but that's very typically used. And, and uh, um, you know, of course, that, that eliminates any impacts to that cultural resource. The, the other option is, of course, that uh, one would, uh, uh, you know, mitigate uh, any impacts to the site as a result of the uh, development or 
construction of, of the pipeline. And uh, that's when you get into the realm of um, uh, more careful and uh, uh, elaborate archaeological method and, and, and techniques. And obviously, there's a couple of issues involved here. Obviously, one of the issues, and you've probably experienced this more than I have, is that time is such a big issue uh, for pipeline construction, and deadlines and permitting become a really major issue here because they have seasonal issues, they have yearly issues, they have a variety of different uh, permitting requirements. And, of course, the other issue that that emerges, emerges, especially in pipelines, is the cost. I mean, whether or not it's cost-efficient, to, to bypass the site or to actually go through it. And I'm just curious, uh, what is your experience with that? I mean, how often uh, do they actually go around it relatively? And I'm talking in generic terms here. And how often do they actually find it efficient to just uh, absolutely uh, do the optimum job on the excavation and, uh, and solve the problem that way? Well, I, you know, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I've ever sat down and worked out what, what this is in terms of real percentages. Um, you know, my experience on uh, recent projects uh, has been that, that avoidance is a preferred option. I think the agencies like to see that because it's uh, impact minimization. So uh, avoidance, um, you know, I think is what, 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 you know, is often chosen um, uh, just simply because it it it, it does um, uh, you know it does avoid impacts to to sensitive resources. Uh, in, in in some cases, it can also be a uh, a more cost effective choice. But I think you really hit the nail on the head that that on any project there are many factors that would need to be considered. Uh, as to what the best option would be for, um, you know, treating a, a cultural resource. Uh, um, if you have to reroute around something for 10 miles, that that's, you know, that's not only not cost-effective because you're buying more pipe, you're buying more land. Right. You know, but it's also got the potential to create impacts for for other uh, resources. Um, you know, in other words, you're you're increasing the chance of finding more archaeological sites or cultural resources. You're increasing the chance of impacting other environmental um, uh, resources because you have to you know go such a long way out of the way, so to speak. My experience of pipelines is that. Um, Frankly, they're very, very good at looking at these kinds of issues and very carefully weighing um, uh, how, uh, how and what the best course of action is. You know, I, 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 without belaboring the point, I think, you know, all through this discussion, we've seen that this, things aren't really black and white. They're always, you know, complex. They're always, um, uh, you know, it depends on the regulatory arena. It depends on the lead agency. It depends on... Uh, what you're finding, where you're finding it, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, there are many, many variables that go into, um, I think, uh, looking at cultural resource management on these kinds of projects. And, and uh, Chris, we just have a couple of minutes left. Um, I, I was going to ask you, since you and I both have sort of cut our teeth on, uh, on old world archaeology, um, specifically in the Near East, Europe, and, and places in, in, 
in east and, and, and to some degree west. Um, where do you, do you see any future for uh, cultural resource management and heritage management uh, with respect to international pipelines, and, and, and where is that at this point in time? Well, yes, I do, and I, I you know, I've had colleagues. Uh, I have not done work of that sort, but I've certainly had colleagues that are are very active on um, uh, big international pipelines. And uh, while the process may be may be different, um, the the same kind of uh, very uh, high quality uh, uh, professionals uh, from many many diff- uh, disciplines are uh, are required to. Uh, Implement, uh, you know, uh, uh, heritage management procedures in, um, in, 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 in settings outside the United States. I, I think that it's, uh, uh, you know, there's a global community of people who do the kinds of things that you and I do, Joe. And I think although the, 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 the specific procedures or the, you know, obviously the, the kinds of archaeological or cultural resources they're dealing with are different, you know, the, the, the problems and the way they try and solve them are very similar. And do you see that as being sort of the next frontier for this type of work? I mean, I know that, you know, there's so much in the way of oil exploration, specifically in places like Central Asia, um, where uh, you have this uh, conflation, really, of uh, resources, the, uh, the gas sources, as well as some of the most magnificent heritage sites in the world. And I, I'm assuming that we're going to only see more and more of this uh, once you start getting international organizationals, organizations involved in this, and, and that the script for that has yet to be written, and I suspect that and I'd like to hear your perspective uh, that this will, will be one of the waves of the future. Oh, absolutely and I'm I'm hoping that the uh, that the next generation who will be uh, uh wiser and more savvy than you and I will be uh, up up for meeting that challenge. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, I'm afraid we have to bring this program to a close. I am extremely happy and appreciative to Chris Bergman for participating in the program. Um, because of the uh, significance and impact of pipelines on archaeo- uh, or in archaeology and the cultural resource uh, and archaeological world in general, we are going to be doing a number of these programs looking at various aspects from the regulator standpoint, from the private consultant standpoint, and also from the, from the academic and research standpoint. So I want to cr- thanks Chris Bergman again for participating. We look forward to his participating down the road. And until next time, thank you very much and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.